Have I been here before? Philippians 1, verse 12, uh, continuing the series that began last week uh, in the book of Philippians. I guess it's page 1671. I didn't know the Bible was that long. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. Now, last week, Pastor Pete spoke on the early verses of Philippians, especially how the grace of God comes alive in the text. And it's been fun for me to dip into this letter again, partly because uh, Connie and I had the privilege of visiting the ruins at Philippi back in uh, 2019, just before the pandemic. We were on a tour called uh, In the Footsteps of St. Paul, part of a, was that an 18-day package, Connie? I can't even remember. It was a long time, anyway. During that time, we visited most of the cities Paul went to on his missionary journeys, uh, Ephesus, Berea, Corinth, Athens, Thessaloniki, etc. To me, Philippi was one of the most attractive places we stopped at. Uh, The ruins are nestled in a valley surrounded by impressively high mountains, a place where lots of Roman military officials uh, retired, and they must have enjoyed it. Part of our tour was to go down to the river where Paul and Silas went when they first came to the city on a Sabbath morning. You can read about it in Acts 16. We were there on a Sunday. Our tour group stopped for a short worship service, it was summer and uh, it was hot, but by the water there were trees and lots of shade. I got asked to preach a brief message to the 40 or so people in our group. That was a neat experience for me personally, literally in the footsteps of St. Paul. Now, it, it was the nature of Paul's ministry that he would move from place to place So he's writing to the congregation in Philippi, one that in a human sense grew because of his efforts, and he's doing so because they want to know what in the world has happened to him. Lacking internet or even the U.S. postal system, they have reached out the best way they know how by sending one of their leaders, a man named Epaphroditus, 
to visit him in prison. Now, our letter doesn't say where Paul was at the time, only that he was, as they say, uh, in detention. There's a good chance he was in the great city of Rome. And for Ephrodinus, that meant a journey across open water, plus a considerable hike using the vast system of Roman roads, about 700 miles. You don't go that far unless you really care, especially back then. So our text this morning is Paul's answer to the Philippians, what in the world has happened to you question? And I suppose we might wonder if his reply is relevant to us nowadays. Time moves on, right? And yet we should consider that the Bible and everything in it is our story. Last time I visited my grandkids in Virginia, uh, I took them to the site of the Battle of Yorktown, about an hour from their house. You remember what happened in Yorktown in September of uh, 1781? This is my history lesson for this morning. It's where George Washington's Continental Army finally and completely defeated the British, thereby ending the Revolutionary War. And I took my grandkids there because I thought they needed to see where the independence of their country became an accomplished fact. Put it this way, if we don't know our story, if we don't take its lessons to heart, we are less able to tell the difference between wisdom and folly. And to my mind, the story of Paul and Philippi matters even more than Yorktown. And thus, our half-hour journey into Philippians this morning is worth the effort. This is our story. So let's uh, look at the text, starting with verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, there's a big story that lies behind those few words. Paul's in prison, and we might say that really it's his own fault. This all started in the year 57 AD. At that time, he was going all around what is now Greece and Turkey, visiting churches. In the process, he was collecting an offering uh, for the church at Jerusalem, which was experiencing hard times. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Hmm? But then he insisted that he was the one who should take the offering there. And that's when the trouble started, because he was a notorious figure there in the holy city. He had been a deeply conservative Jewish scholar, one who tried to root out the Christian faith when it first appeared. But then in a shocking turnabout, he had gone over to the other side and become a Jesus worshiper. As a result, there were many in Jerusalem who viewed him as a traitor and truly wanted him dead. Now, the people in the churches he was visiting knew Paul would be in danger if he went to Jerusalem. They said, you know, you should let someone else move that money. Don't go in that hornet's nest. They'll kill you. But he felt it was important to go, and try, in part to try and mend a rift that was developing between Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and Gentile believers in the hinterlands where he was doing his work. So he went anyway, and then when he got there, he was seized at the temple by a Jewish mob and nearly torn limb from limb. You can read about it in Acts 21. 
The Roman authorities then took him into custody, partly to protect him from his enemies. But after that, his only opportunity or chance for freedom and safety lay in appealing to the Roman courts. And so he made the appeal, but then that man had to be taken to Rome, where he had now been in prison awaiting trial for almost two years. Hmm. You thought American justice was slow, but uh, bureaucracy everywhere and at all times acts pretty much the same. So the Philippians are concerned to know what's going on. Are you alive? Are you in good health? Is there anything we can do for you? And Paul knows this has been a circus. He knows things haven't worked out the way he hoped. Yet in spite of the jail time, in spite of what some might view as his foolishness in going to Jerusalem in the first place, he comes out right away and says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now there are two things here in the text, two big things I'd like us to note. <clears throat> the first is that uh, Paul says here almost nothing about his personal circumstances, choosing instead to speak of how the gospel is doing. Of course, Epaphroditus will have all kinds of personal information to share once he gets back to Philippi. Yes, he's well. No, he's not discouraged. But in the letter, Paul chooses to focus on the advancement of God's kingdom, the good news that the new age has dawned through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, it's not that his personal situation is unimportant to him. It's that he and the good news are so tied together, so intertwined, that he can't explain himself without making reference to that overarching gospel reality. As he goes on to say, as a result of my imprisonment, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers here have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. One way to look at this is to say that Paul must be pretty whacked out. Man, he's taking that religion stuff just a bit too far. But it is like I said a moment ago, just like the gospel is our story, it is his story too. It is the one he lives in, the one he thinks of himself as acting out. I have a role here that I have to play. I am on stage acting it out before my Lord and King, and there is no way I climb down from there till he says my performance is complete. And boy, we could use a few more people like that. My story and God's story are so intertwined, I can't separate the one from the other. So that's one big thing. And the other is uh, in verses 15 through 18. Uh, for some reason, Paul has run up in Rome against at least a few folks who have it in for him, and I mean people in the church. In verse 17, he speaks of those who are stirring up trouble for me. But uh, he's not so interested in how that's affecting him either. Indeed, he has taken that trouble and placed it under God's authority. To him, it's okay if people put him down. It's okay 
if, it's, if he's treated wrongly or disregarded. Some of these folks are preachers, apparently, who, who want to promote themselves in addition to proclaiming good news. They are, as they say these days, building their brand. But Paul doesn't particularly care because these folks, though they are ambitious, apparently at least some of them are still Christ-centered in their proclamation. So as the text says, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. And as one writer puts it, this is the primary theological freight Think of a train here that we should move from the passage into our lives. If we face life-threatening circumstances or if people treat us cruelly, we should keep in mind Paul's perspective. What matters most is whether or not the gospel is going forward. If it is, then we should rejoice. Now again, that sounds over the top. It even sounds like it's avoiding what would seem to be the main thing, which is what happens to us personally, right? But to repeat, the gospel is our story, and most of all, it is God's story. That makes it, last time I checked, the true story. As a result, every other story must subject itself to this one, including your story and mine, the one about where we live and what we eat and how our kids are doing and whether the world's falling apart around us. Oh God, everything's going to hell. What are we going to do about it? Well, what we're going to do is double down on God's story, which is how Paul chooses to deal with his frustrating and I suppose sometimes depressing circumstances. Now, as I thought about this uh, passage and I prayed over it and struggled with it, it seemed that there were three things we could say about how it applies to us personally. I think they go together logically. The first is that, like Paul, we should be concerned for the advance of the gospel, so much so that it becomes our joy, something that makes us happy. That's the last word in the passage, you know. <clears throat> he, Paul talks about how Christ is preached, how the whole palace guard has learned about his Christian stance. Then he says, because of this, I rejoice. It's a key concept in Philippians. Joy in its various forms comes up, uh, as I read, 16 times in its four chapters. But then to put that joy at the front of our minds is harder than it sounds. I mean, there's too much going on, too much difficulty, too much worry. You know how it is in life. We figure we'll get, the really, get to the really important stuff once we get our problem solved. <laughs> when my marriage is settled, when I have enough money, when my anxiety settles down, then I'll be ready to put first things first. But I'm not there yet, and I don't know if I ever will be. Well, that's serious stuff. Life is serious. But let me make a serious suggestion. You know, one of the ways we deal with difficulty is by distracting ourselves. For example, I distract myself sometimes. This is my true confession moment. I distract myself sometimes 
by listening to sports radio talk shows. This is a useless activity wherein I listen to supposedly informed people talk about the travails of the Portland Trailblazers or the fortunes of the Green Bay Packers or whether or not such a player will be one player will be traded to another team and for whom. Dumb as it sounds, I'm interested in this stuff and I can sit and listen to it all through breakfast and I forget about my problems when I do. So here's my, my suggestion. Distract yourself with the news and the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Make that your hobby. I mean, you may be into home decorating or hunting or working on cars or traveling to distant places. Those are great distractions. But why not make the progress of the gospel a chief interest? You'll have to listen to some podcasts probably. Maybe read a book or two. Find yourself a preacher online who really makes you think. You'll have to learn to pray for stuff. Maybe you'll decide to go to a conference or a meeting that scratches a particular itch. If you're going to travel, maybe you should go to the Holy Land. If you do, it'll blow your mind. Get interested in your story. Learn about it. Talk about it with others. Be curious. Ask Pastor Pete if you don't know where to start. Because you need that story. You're the next thing to naked without it. All it takes is one bad event uh, or one defining disaster, and you'll realize you have nothing, no resources to help you face what's in front of you. And it's not just for the disasters that you and I need God's story. It's for the right now. It's for the ordinary. And, of course, it's true, you know, that a half-hour sermon at church on Sunday will not be enough to feed your soul. It is a start, but there's a whole lot of experts out there who are doing everything they can to distract you from God's story so you'll buy more stuff or work yourself up into a state where you're like a bomb that's ready to explode. You need to make your story, your real story, your main hobby. So that's one thing. Then the second practical application has to do with Paul's difficult circumstances. We're going to run into them, right? Maybe you're in the midst of them this morning. But let me tell you a great Bible truth that nobody wants to believe, which is that God works through adverse circumstances. Please note carefully what I said. It's not just that he works in spite of adversity. We're up against a roadblock, but God will provide a way out. Rather, he leads us into and through those circumstances, directs that we will need to plow that hard soil. That's what's happening to Paul in the text. We don't like that idea, but I happen to believe it is true. It doesn't happen all the time in our lives but it does sometimes. And we can survive those hard circumstances by viewing them through a gospel lens, which is saying a lot. The terrible story of Job, hopeless as it seems, helps us see that this is so. 
Job loses all his wealth and his children in a single day. Down he goes with no way to get back up. It's like he's shot in the heart. A big part of him dies in that moment. But a small part refuses to wink out. Job 1 verse 20 says that afterwards he tears his clothes and shaves his head as a symbol of his agony. But then he falls to the ground and of all things worships. Naked came I from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. And you know what he says next. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now his wife's response is to say, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die! A great many people have done that when life goes terribly bad. Many times it seems like the most reasonable response But Job understands, and maybe it's the only thing he understands in that moment, that to give up on God is to give up on the only means by which his story can ever make any sense. Because again, trouble will come to us. It is Job who said, man is born to trouble. What, as surely as the sparks fly upward, Job 5, verse 7. Now, when it happens, we can say, as many unfortunate people have, that life is nothing but an empty cosmic joke. All the junk I've been through proves it. Or we can say with Job, blessed be the name of the Lord. Because there's no doubt God is there in the midst of Job's life. In the story we learn, even though he never does, that God has actually allowed this to happen to him for reasons that are never explained and which we cannot fathom. And like Job, we can experience the same thing. A lot of times we don't know what's happening or why. For example, my wife doesn't know why she's had cancer twice in the past year. I don't know either. But we're not giving up on God's story. It's our story, and by his grace, we're sticking to it. Now, my third application flows naturally and biblically from the first two, but I have to cheat a little bit to get there. Forgive me. I want us to cheat by thinking for a moment about Philippians 2, verse 5, just on the next page in your Bibles. I'm not interested in stealing thunder from the person who gets to preach on that verse, so maybe we could call this a preview of sorts. The verse says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus dealt with constant adversity. As Isaiah 53 reminds us, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. And that sounds really depressing. Almost like Jesus was saying, hey, let's see how bad life can hurt. But the point is not how much hurt can he handle. No, the point is why he's willing to put up with it. And why is that? 
It's because he means to save the world through his sacrificial love. He means to save the world through his sacrificial love. His goal is so important and his love is so great that if it means he must sacrifice, if he must suffer, he will. But he does not exclude us from his sufferings. In a highly significant passage in Mark 8, he tells his disciples for the first time that he means to go to the cross and die. But the very next thing he says, and this is crucial, is that if we mean to be his followers, we too must take up our cross. If any man would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Mark 8:34. That is a weird statement in one sense. I mean, we cannot take up our cross the same way Jesus did, right? He died for the sins of the world, and we can't do that. But you see, there is a larger category here, which is that it was sacrificial love that led him to the cross. Sacrificial love that kept him plowing that hard ground there in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he died. Father, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Mark 14, 36. And my point is that the way we know we understand God's story, the way we know we really get it, is when we are willing to practice sacrificial love. This is a constant theme in the New Testament. It's like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, the love of Christ compels us. It makes us do things we would not otherwise do. Jesus wrote our story. He wrote the story of sacrificial love when he died on the cross. But that story is not done till we take up our cross with him. Maybe you've heard that uh, Greek, the language of the New Testament, has a special word for this kind of love, agape. That's the kind of love that gives itself up for another person which is what Paul did. I'll go to Jerusalem and try to solve a church dispute despite the danger. It's what Epaphroditus did. I'll go 700 miles to see how my friend is doing. So be concerned for the advance of the gospel. Know that difficult circumstances will come and decide that you will take up your cross of sacrificial love. Because that's how our story works. And we're sticking to it. Pray with me. Father, this is a monumental challenge that you place before us. We see it in the life of Paul. We see it in the actions of Epaphroditus. We see it in the lives of the saints. We see it in people like Job. You want to see it in folks like us. And so help us as we try in our own puny way to practice sacrificial love. In Christ's name, amen.